Bangor Worldwide has been promoting and supporting World Mission for over 85 years. Our podcasts are free of charge. You can find out more about us at www.worldwidemission.org. We hope you enjoy this talk. Again, apologies for breaking into your conversation, but let me welcome you to Assembly Buildings, and let me welcome you to this Bangor Worldwide seminar entitled Suburban Church, Urban Mission Field. My name is Mark Welsh. I work here for PCI as Mission Development Officer, and it's my pleasure and and privilege to be able to host you this morning and, and to guide us through this morning's proceedings. 
Wearing my hat as host, let me say not just a welcome to all of you for coming, and we're delighted at the, at the response that there has been, but let me say a special word of welcome to, to Mez and to, to Steve, who's down at the back, um, Mez sharing with us later, uh, and also to Tom Clark, uh, chairman of the, the Bangor Worldwide Missionary Convention. Uh, so you will also hear a little bit from Tom in, in a moment or two. From the, the practical side of things, this is where you do the, the, the air stewardess bit, um, I'm here for your comfort, but primarily for your safety. Fire exits are the door that you would have come in, one through straight at the back there, and, and two more at this side of the room. The alarm in this building is a siren, uh, and if you hear the siren, there are no um, practices planned for today, so if we hear the siren, we're going to assume that it is real, uh, and the assembly point is across the road beside Jury's Hotel, just outside the Royal Belfast Academical Institution, or INST. Other comfort features, um, again, for those of you who don't know the building, um, toilets are situated if you go out through the doors in, in the center of the hall there and immediately to the left um, if you're a male. <laughs> don't go immediately to the left if you're a female. Take to go one door down, um, but again, you know what I mean. Thanks, Jack. Yeah. In terms of the, the program, on the tables this morning, you will see uh, a page, or there should be hopefully a page each with uh, the program sort of running order. Um, the program's broken down into three sections. We're really going to hear Mez's uh, story and, and reflect on, on that and, and what we can learn about somebody who has moved from outside church culture into church culture, whatever church culture is. We're then going to look at the movement then of Charlotte, uh, uh, Charlotte Chapel from that setting in the, in the center of Edinburgh and the work that it did in, in Nidri, and then the growing story. Uh, and so as we go through the morning, we'll hear from Mez his reflections on that, There'll be an opportunity within your table groups to discuss that. I'm conscious that Nidri isn't Belfast. Nidri isn't wherever you happen to work. Uh, and so we want to give you the opportunity in your table groups to contextualize what you're hearing from, from Mez and, and begin, and we say only begin at this stage, to try to put that into some sort of, of, of working order for, for where you happen to, to be ministering. There'll also be then, at the end of that, there'll be a time for, for questions and answers. And again, Mez will, will, will provide the, the answers. We hope you guys will provide the questions. Um, and again, we do encourage you at that stage to ask questions. Um, I'm conscious there are a lot of ministers around here. Um, this isn't an opportunity for every single one of you to, per, to give a sermon um, on your reflections on, on urban ministry. I'll put that out front. Uh, we do want to hear from Mez. We want to hear Mez's reflections. Uh, and so do think of questions as you go through. Scribble those down uh, and, and ask him for his perceptions uh, on, on urban ministry that might be uh, in your mind. In terms then of the, the Bangor worldwide, let me invite Tom up just very briefly uh, and to share something of, of some of the rest of the program. Yeah, I'm very much uh, conscious that you're here to hear Mez and not me. Uh, so what I'm going to say about the program is it's in front of you. Uh, we've put them on the tables. Obviously, we're getting into the program now, but there's still plenty to come, and particularly Mez is on tonight. Uh, so we've been busy in Bangor this week. We hope to be busy tonight and, and subsequent nights. Can I mention one particular aspect, which is the Waterfront Hall celebration on Saturday night. John Lennox is coming, and we've one or two other speakers. Maud uh, Kells is involved as well. It's a ticketed event. There are still some in Ulster Hall. Uh, I've got some with me this morning. We're up about maybe getting close to three quarters full. I really would like to have the place absolutely packed. So if you can get any of your, you want to come along, get some tickets, get your people to come, that'd be brilliant. Last thing then, this is free, what you're at this morning. 
Um, but you'll see envelopes, so if you feel moved to actually give, then by all means use the envelopes. Help us to get the gift aid if you sign it. And if you want to allocate it to a particular thing, like 20 schemes, just put that on the back um, and just leave them at the end or post them into us if you want to take it away. But it is free and it's no obligation to pay. Thank you. As you leave, there will be that uh, opportunity to give through the, through the gift aid or, or just give loose change, whatever, as Tom said, you feel led to give. Um, there'll also be, in, in the same area, an opportunity to fill in and, and to leave evaluation forms. Now, I'm mentioning the evaluation form at the beginning rather than at the end, because again, what we want you to do as you go through this morning is to think, this is really good, but I'd love to develop that further. And whether it's through central churches, whether it's through Bangor Worldwide, we need to know what we need to know where you guys are reaching so that we can begin to try to seek to scratch that. Um, so as you go through, please don't think of the evaluation form as simply something that you fill in at the end and tick various boxes, but do use that to record thoughts where you would like us to help you move on in, in the future. And in terms of, of helping you, um, over to this side um, and running over the, the course of, of the morning, we, we do have a book sale provided by the Faith Mission, again, through Bangor Worldwide, where we do have a couple of, of Mez's books. Is, any, is there anybody out there? And what's the point of life, along with another book uh, on urban mission um, available to you? There's only a small number there, but again, I'm sure if, you, um, if you're too late um, getting to the table, I'm sure Faith Mission will be more than happy to help you out uh, further down the line. As we go into the program, we come as those who, who want to share the gospel. We come as those who believe and worship and, and serve a, a Lord who is interested in every single individual and every single community. And we worship one who wants to see lives and, and communities transformed as they encounter him. As I was thinking of a verse or, or, a, or a short passage that we could make sure that what we say here and do here this morning is, is based in, in Scripture, Acts 11, 1 to 18 came to mind. I'll be honest, it wasn't the one that immediately came to mind, because you could go down the road of the Jeremiah 29 and, and 7, you know, seek the peace and the prosperity of the city. You could go down the Isaiah 58 of, of building up broken buildings and restoring streets with dwellings. But this one struck me because I came across it a few days ago, and, and it struck me because in Acts 11, 1 to 18, we have Peter relating or summarizing his experience of the Holy Spirit and his experience of, of, of cross-cultural mission with Cornelius. And, and so often we think of that passage in an overseas or cross-cultural type, type, type environment, but actually what we have here in this particular passage is we do have insight into cross-culture. But actually, these guys weren't living a million miles apart. They didn't need to take big boats or fly on planes to interact with each other. They were just down the road. And yet, cultures that were totally diverse and cultures that clashed. Us Jews don't do this stuff with you Gentiles. It also gives us an insight into church. Peter having had this vision from the Spirit of this ministry to those who weren't the same as him. Peter, who had this vision for a, for a ministry, who then acted on that and saw the Spirit work, then found himself having to explain to the church what it was he was about. 
and the church weren't exactly dying about it because suddenly they were, their traditions were being challenged. And it wasn't just culture of Jew versus Gentile, but it was religious tradition. And this is how we do church, and how dare you think you can do something differently. And so there's challenges in this passage, challenges to us about how we view different cultures and our willingness to embrace those. There's challenge to us here about church and how we do church and whether we need to rethink that. But the passage primarily will point us to Christ. Christ who, through His Spirit that He left, spoke into Peter's life and, and transformed Peter's view and his understanding and his thinking. The Spirit of Christ who transformed Cornelius' life as he encountered it. And the Spirit of Christ who transformed a whole church view as they grasped eventually what it was the Spirit was doing. This morning we want to come with a sense that we're learners. We're like Peter. We all know the theory that there's a mission that we've been given. We all know that in our heads. But are there barriers for us in terms of our cultural understandings? Are there barriers for us because of how we perceive how church should be done and how it should be done right? And we come, therefore, with open ears, open minds, open hearts, trusting that the Christ that transformed Peter, the Christ that transformed Cornelius, the Christ that transformed that early church at the council in Jerusalem will transform us first of all. And then we trust and pray that not just working in us, but through us, we will see the communities of this land transformed. So, as Mez comes to speak to us, let me take a moment and pray for us and pray for Mez. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you that you are a God of transformation. We thank you that you have such love for the whole world for every single individual, for communities, for diversity. And yet, Lord, we recognize that as we come to this morning's program, we come with particular baggage, we come with particular views of what the world should be like, of what cultures are right or wrong, perhaps instead of seeing them as just being different. We have particular views on how we should do church. And Lord, we want to come to you, as Peter did, struggling with this stuff, but praying that your Spirit would open our eyes, that we would see you being able to work in us and through us in new ways, that the communities that we engage with would be transformed, that we wouldn't be stumbling blocks, but that you would be able to use us and flow through us into those communities and bring mighty transformation. So, Lord, transform us in the first place, and Lord, we pray for Mez as he speaks. Lord, give him the words to say as he shares with us his story, the story of Nidri Church, and the ongoing story of your work in that place. For it's in Christ's name we pray it. Amen. Mez, let me, let me invite you to join us at the front here. And for the first of our sections together, entitled very simply, From the Outside In. All right, good morning. Good morning. Thanks, Jack. 
I'm glad you're glad to be here, son. Um, right, just so you know, I've got these titles, so is someone going to just shut me up in 15 minutes and then do your gig? All right. I can tell you in the sort of Presbyterian motherland, it's all sorted for you, isn't it? Um, yeah, just a couple of things. Can I add a, uh, ask a question first? Has anybody, or put your hand up if you've heard of 20 schemes, just so I understand. All right, so that's about 50, 50. Um, you should check out 20schemes.com, which is our church planting and revitalization ministry uh, in Scotland among council estates there. Um, I'm not going to say really anything about it this morning other than this, because I know tonight at the um, convention I'm doing just a talk exclusively about the ministry of 20 schemes and what we're doing. So if that interests you and you want to find out more about that, um, come to that. Um, the second thing, uh, can I um, recommend a few books that you didn't recommend? And um, one of them is called When Helping Hurts uh, by Brian Fickett. That is a um, standard book that anybody working in estates ought to read, largely because uh, more affluent churches tend to uh, start any evangelistic enterprise in any poor community by doing something. A soup kitchen, uh, a food ladder, cap, all these things. I don't have time to talk about that subject today, but we are really wary of that. But When Helping Hurt is a great book, alongside another book called Toxic Charity, and that is by a guy called Bob Lupton. And he's just written a follow-up book, which I just read this week, called Charity Detox, which is even better, and how to help and uh, influence people from poorer communities without hurting them. So just off the, off the, off, off the bat, those books are standard reading for uh, all of my guys um, back home, and I'd recommend them. They're not books on church planting, both books written by men who have been in the fields of community development for like, for decades. And uh, the, the principles there are really, really helpful. So I think I should say just a minute, I'm not here to give my testimony per se, um, but um, just, I'll give you my CV if it helps. Um, uh, Irish boy, um, on the streets at two, actually in Belfast in care for five years till I was seven, and then shipped to a big children's home in England in the late 70s, grew up in care, uh, council estates, uh, in and out of foster carers, etc. Uh, no, no, um, n- no news of the gospel, nothing. Um, and um, when I was converted, which I'll get onto later, um, I was converted from the streets, just out of prison. I never read a Bible, never been to a church service, clueless. Um, then I went to Bible college because I thought that would make me a proper Christian. And uh, I know a few Greek words to show off at parties, but that's about that. Um, worked um, in my first church in a rural church as an assistant minister, like a rural area, uh, quite a posh church. Lasted nine months, and um, that didn't go too well for me. Um, and then next church was in inner city Birmingham in England, and uh, that was a great time there. And then planted a church among street gangs in Brazil, in uh, South America. We were there for four years before coming back to Scotland seven and a half years ago to revitalize the church. 
So I've planted churches, revitalized churches, been outside of churches, been inside of churches, been in post churches, poor churches. Does not make me an expert in anything. Just I makes me have a few experiences. Okay, so I'm not here as a pro. I'm not some sort of poor guru. Uh, I'm just a lad trying to do my best to grow gospel churches for um, some of the least reached people in Western society, which are people who come from council estates. So I hope that helps. So I've been told outside in. So my first sort of memory of church was basically walking through a graveyard when I was a boy and looking at all the, all the, um, you know, the names and the, the people who were dead and the headstones. And then that's, that basically imprinted upon my mind that's what church was, a place for the dead. And, um, and then as I was older and in my council estate in, in the north of England, um, we would sometimes see these well-dressed people scurry into this big church building on our council estate on a Sunday morning and it'd be the usual ticket guys in suits and women in sort of it's Laura Ashley isn't it um, dresses and a little straw hat um, and um, yeah so for us church was for dead people or posh people it certainly had nothing to do with us, our lives, and our problems. Of course, you'd go to the odd wedding and baptism or christening, but other than that, irrelevant. Um, I wasn't, didn't first come into contact with Christians until I was 19 years old, and I was living on the streets. I'd been homeless for about five or six years at this point. Um, I was a wild boy, little man syndrome, and um, when I first heard Christians come and talk about Jesus and uh, the good news and all this, I absolutely hated them. I mean, I despised these people. And for me, this is how I interpreted events at the time. So here I was on the streets with my boys, all of a sudden... These guys drive up in cars, look like CID, by the way. Half you Christian dudes look like CID, by the way. Poor Stephen was going to a gig yesterday, and the guy, he did look like he was in the flying squad. He was pure paranoid all the way there. He was a missionary with OMF, but he just, he had the look. Anyway, um, and so I'm, I'm looking at these guys driving in, nice motors, you know, center partings, cardigans, the full Christian kit. Got that one in for you there, Tom. You like that, son? Um, um, And didn't have a clue. And then they played football with us, stopped us at halftime, told us this gospel. Here's what I heard. I heard this. Posh people coming in, telling me I was a sinner. I needed to repent. I needed to put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ to uh, be forgiven. That's what was being said. And that's fairly standard, right? Here's what's being interpreted. Uh, I am better than you, and you need to change your life and become good like we are. That's the message. Um, That's why contextualization is such a key thing, right? 
Um, and so here I were these guys coming in, looking down on us, telling us we were bad. I mean, we already knew that because everybody thought that about us anyway. And saying, um, become good and become more like us. Okay? And when I first met Christians, I got arrested. And I did, yeah. And for breach of the peace and all sorts of things. Um, and so my first introduction to the Christian life was quite hostile. Now, these guys kept coming back week after week to this it's a community centre where we all used to hang out and um, playing football and uh, persevering. This would go on for years. You know, they talk about Jesus. We'd um, either smash the place up or get kicked out or, or whatever. Um, we learned to behave, behave ourselves till at least half time, so you got a good 40 minutes before you could just send them out of the room. Um, but a long time. Now, during that period, two men in particular stuck by me. Uh, and ultimately, obviously, my life was a mess behind the scenes, and I ended up in maximum security uh, prison. And um, the two men that I uh, had originally abused the most, that I'd originally, you know, was really angry with. Um, they wrote to me in prison. They became my friends. They sent me money for smokes. Uh, they even bought me a little radio. And um, slowly but surely, um, over, the, over my incarceration, we built up sort of a trust. Um, they stopped preaching at me. And they talked to me like I was a human being and not a pet project to convert. Um, and you know how it goes, right? Every time you sit with a Christian, you can be talking about anything and they'll want to turn it into, you know, some weird gospel talk. Just stop that. That's a bit creepy. Um, oh, look at that tree. Oh, that reminds me of the tree my saviour hung on. That's, you know, all that chat. Um, so... When I was due for parole, um, one of these boys um, took me into his home. I wasn't going to get parole. I had no address. I had my crimes were extreme violence, and I was on license for 20 years. And um, this guy said to me, do you know what? Why don't you come and stay with me? Come and live with me. And he opened his house to me. I mean, I'm thinking, result, right? I mean, this guy's a clown. I'll, yeah, oh, yeah, I'll come with you. And um, got out of jail, went to live with this guy. And, um, I mean, even his house, I went in his house and I felt dirty. Do you know what I mean? He had, like, nice sofas and, and it was just a house, right? But I, I never had all that. And I just felt uncomfortable, I felt awkward. Every, I always remember meeting Christians, they're all clean. And I'm all dirty. And my boys talk about, to me about that all the time. That's how they feel about life. And that's not your problem, that's our insecurity, by the way. But you just need to know that whatever the front is, that's how we feel. Um, I mean, you wouldn't have got this out of me. This is years of reflection, right? Um, and so, anyway, um, I went to church with this dude for the first time. I was 22 years old, and I just went out of respect for him. The guy gave me somewhere to live. The least I could do is go to church, right? 
and it was uh, a church, and I'm not making any statement here, I realise I'm in Ireland, and what I'm about to say is going to offend people, um, and I'm trying to be not offensive, Tom, I'm doing a good job, aren't I, son? Perhaps they're the cardigan wearers, but unlucky for you lot, um, you need to repent of that. Um, so, um, it was an AV-only church, obviously I didn't know what an AV was, right, but I'm just telling you what it was. Um, and, you know, the guy gets up the front and starts talking in English, obviously, then reading in some other language, and then praying in this language. And I'm, like, completely baffled. He just seemed to switch in and out of these ways of talking, which was just bizarre to me. Um, and so that took me a bit uh, by surprise. Um, I talked to the guy, hey, Mez, welcome to our church. And then the next thing, it's you know, talking differently to God, and I couldn't quite figure that out. It was sort of like an organ-only sort of congregation. It's what, what we would classically call a, a reformed, evangelical sort of independent Baptist church. Um, men were all in suits, and um, the women were, again, dresses and the hat thing. And I felt from the moment I walked in the door, completely isolated. I mean, I thought I was at like um, a probation officer's convention or something, do you know what I mean? And um, the only time we get dressed up is to go to court or, you know, to go to a wedding or something, posh. Um, and um, I even bought a shirt and tie. I'll confess that sin right now, early on, just so you... Lucas is looking at me in disgust here, but... I did. I sold out Lucas in the early days to peer pressure. I thought that's what Christian Edubes did, right? So I got one. It didn't last very long, but I got one. So I thought that's what Jesus wants, obviously, because these, these people are all doing it. This is what churchy people do. Um, and I was battling being completely out of place and feeling completely isolated. Knowledge of the Bible was assumed from the off. And I was clueless. I couldn't even tell you, you know, what the big numbers, the chapter number was, what a verse number. I mean, I did not have a clue. This, and I'm talking 20 years ago. And let me tell you, the gap... Have some musical accompaniment with someone? There. The gap between um, the church, evangelical church now, particularly in Scotland I can, I'm speaking about, and council estates is bigger. Okay? But knowledge was assumed... Um, and I was clueless, and basically my experience was I was just completely lost and intimidated, even though to look at me, you would have said, the guy's all right. It's a front, right? You know, we come from the streets. You've got to front it out. You're doing jail. You've got to front it out. So I just took church as doing jail, but harder, and that's not even a joke. It was hard work. Because at least in jail, I know the ins and outs. I know the system. I know how to play the game on the streets, bish, bash, bosh. In this church gig, what is happening? Um, new uniform, new language, new rules, unspoken stuff. Everything to me was like, man, I'm like on an alien spaceship here. Um, and... Okay, and then, so what happened was, my first introduction of church put me off the Christian faith. And it wasn't until a guy called Mark, an older guy, 
he took me under his wing. I mean, obviously, people know my testimony knows I was converted reading a Matthew Henry commentary on the Bible at home, just so you know that. Um, uh, and, but a man called Mark, after, just after I got converted reading the book of Romans, um, I um, came to faith. And this guy took me under his wing, and we studied the Bible together. Man, I was the most annoying dude in the world to this fellow. Looking back, now I often say to him, how the heck did you cope with me? I'd be like ringing him at two o'clock in the morning, you know, because my mate Steve used to ring me at 12 when he discovered the book of Romans. Going, have you read, at midnight, have you read Romans? Oh yeah, I've read it a few times, yeah, yeah. It's brilliant, it's brilliant. And I'd be, the, I'd be like this guy at two in the morning knocking on his door. What, is, what, about, what does this mean? And he'd be like, right, well, this means he was so patient with me. And we basically went through this course. It's an old school course. I think it was called Each One Evangelize One or something. Anyone heard of that course? Old school mission course. Basically, creation to Christ. And um, we just walked through this whole structure of how the Bible came together and what the gospel was about. And I blitzed him. Blitzed him with questions. And I blitzed him because... The church gig wasn't doing it for me. I just had to sit there, and I'm just trying to keep up. And I'm like, you know, oh, you know, the story of so-and-so in the... And, like, you're pointing at your clock. Is that my first minute up? Right, I'm, fin- I'm finishing. I'm closing. Oh, these guys are tight, aren't they? <laughs> hey? They're so tight, I don't think you get a £10 note between that gap. Anyway. Took me under his wing. We studied the Bible. And here's my point. That's where I grew in faith, not on Sundays. And uh, Sunday services remained out of my reach for at least two years. Now, you can make it that what you want. I still went to church, you understand me? This Sunday, but clueless. And what happened for me was making friends got me through the early years when I was tempted to give up and go back to the streets. And I'll say something else. For me, the culture of street life was far more friendly and welcoming than the culture of church life. And it was only because guys who listened to me, walked with me, helped me struggle, and prayed for me that I persevered. Obviously, the help of God and the Spirit is axiomatic to this discussion, but there we go, I'm stopping. You can have your thing now. All right, God, you boys are pressurizing. We've got one there, one there. Someone's, can I get Big Steve up here? We'll in, you can intimidate him, but. <laughs> I'm intimidated, trust me. <laughs> <laughs> this first section is a little bit shorter. We are building in more time for, for Mez to expand on, on, on the other sections as, as the morning goes on. But we do want to give you time to, to work through. First discussion question, we, we don't want to, pin this down too much, despite what Mez might think. Um, we, we do want to give a, a level of flexibility and, and freedom here. So, as you've listened to what Mez has shared, as you have reflected on that in terms of your own ministries, what are the lessons that you can learn from Mez's story and experience? Chat away.
Okay, folks, I'm going to break into your conversations again. Um, there'll be plenty of opportunity to keep the conversations going over the course of the morning. Um, but I do want to pick up uh, just for a few moments at this stage, uh, and again, reflecting on the sense of, of the, out, the church outsider looking in. If there are any questions that folks have that we'll, we'll, we'll put to Mez, um, there are the session of the seminar is being recorded for Bangor Worldwide, so if you do have a question, don't just blurt it out if you can wait till, till David appears with the, the microphone. Um, just it means we don't have to repeat the question to everybody for the, for the sake of the recording. So, any questions? Okay, session two then. <laughs> any questions? Make it an easy one, Lucas. Yeah, yeah, I'll keep it easy. Um, our church has just acquired a new building that sits right at a socioeconomic interface between a so-called posh area and a more uh, a council estate area um, with a lot of uh, paramilitary activity and all those things. So uh, how, what's the best way to begin, I guess, if, if, if you have a church with third-level educated people and all those kind of things to begin to make those relationships without coming in, like riding in on the white horse? Where, how do you just start with that? Do you need, do you need someone to move into the estate, be, yeah. you know, in a house, you know? That, we're going to get like? to that in session three. All right, cool. It's like a little EastEnders thing there. You just have to wait for the next episode. <laughs> okay, anybody, anybody got a question? Okay, we're going to in the back. Mez, obviously there were a lot of things in the church when you first went in that were quite negative and off-putting and that stuff. Um, was there anything positive for you coming in that actually was also encouraging and helpful? Or was it all negative? Because I guess it'd be good to hear if there were any things that they were doing that, yeah. that were good for you. So that's an interesting perspective you had on what I just said. Because I don't think I said anything negative. So when you think about that. So what, um, the, my experience is... Um, my interpretation of events it doesn't make, you know, a lot of it was my problem, my misunderstanding, my misreading the situation. They, it was, let me get, be very clear about that church. They were out there, as far out there away from me and my life as I could be, but those people loved me. They were genuine. They taught me a great respect for the Bible, to trust God's word. Uh, and, and so, um, I... I'm sharing the lessons with you so you understand the mindset. Um, I think that my, even that experience was positive because it's helped me as I minister to my own guys now uh, in my church. It's just, you know, language, for instance. You know, do I teach theological terms uh, from the Bible or do I dumb it down? This is another mistake people make. No, I teach theological terms. Teaching's important. We have to teach the Word of God and we have to make it understand. And so um, there were lots of positives, um, even the sort of negatives. Does that make sense? If, I'm just giving you my... Ex I mean, I could tell you what I thought was wrong with the church, but that's not what I got asked to do. I, I just want to share how I experienced it through all of my own... Um, you know what I mean? Presuppositions and failings. Because uh, we're a big victim culture. We think everybody owes us. 
And that's just not true. And most of us need to book up. That's the other side of the spin, by the way. But. Okay. Thank you. Okay, let's move on to the second session. And having heard Mez's personal story, looking at what does a suburban church do in terms of urban mission? Charlotte Chapel's story from the center to the margins. Mez. Yeah, this is a weird title, right? I just feel like uh, from the center to the margins. I feel like, I'm at, like it's a school jotter or something. But uh, can I just be clear? Um, I'll tell you my perspective of Charlotte Chapel. I didn't come from Charlotte Chapel. Let me just be clear about that. Um, I'll get into it, but um, just as any confusion. I came to Charlotte Chapel in 2007 after nearly four years in Brazil planting with street gangs and, uh, and prostitutes. And, and Charlotte Chapel is a big city centre church, 200 years old, uh, and uh, 800-ish members an affluent, what you would do, a typical affluent city centre uh, church with a reputation, you know, as a preaching centre. Some of you old dudes know, like, sort of Red Path and Derek Prime and, you know, all those old school boys. And um, I don't mean that in a derogatory way. They're, they're good lads, right? Um, and then um, what would happen is this big city centre church, um, years previously had taken over uh, a decrepit old city mission hall in a housing scheme uh, in, in Nidri. Um, and um, there'd been a witness in that hall for 120 years. The gospel had been there. And because um, I've seen it, I've flown about Belfast and that in the car with, with, with Johnny and the boys. and, and um, you know, the old school Edinburgh City Mission, Glasgow City Mission. Does Belfast have a city mission? Yes. I mean, historically, you know, they built, they built mission halls. There were city centre churches and in the outlying areas, at least in Scotland, in the schemes, there were halls, gospel halls, whatever the old title was. And this was one of them. And it was dying. Um, and it had asked for Charlotte Chapel's intervention. I'm going back 20 years ago, way predating me. And um, I think when the Charlotte took control of the place, and that is the right word, there were six ladies and a dog. And you know the drill, right? They're all fighting over the dog. Um, and um, 30 years previously, they had had 500 children in Sunday school. Okay? This was a place with a history. Just so you understand, as a scheme... Nidri is 200 years old, and people have lived there. They were constructed schemes and council estates in, in most of Western society after the Industrial Revolution to house the working class poor, okay? And as industry moved into the city centres, the slums moved out into these purpose-built communities. I don't know what the history is in Northern Ireland, but that's the history of Scottish housing schemes. I'm assuming it's quite similar. And, and so people, generations upon generations of families have lived there. And so the mission was integral to the life of that community, just the name of their mission. And that's important you understand these things because 
Um, much missiological stuff being written about church planting today is being written by middle-class outsiders, cultural outsiders, talking about post-Christian Europe, post-modernity. They're all true things, but that doesn't exist within our subculture. Highly supernaturalistic, highly spiritual, and even though they're, um, they're, they're open to spiritual conversations, but they're against the institution of the churches because they see it as a posh place for dead people. You understand me? And so we have to be very uh, careful because there's a lot of misunderstanding um, about our culture. Anyway, I've digressed. There was a lot of people 30 years ago in the church. And um, just to throw out a question, what do you think killed it? That's not sort of rhetorical. I know you like to do that. Anyone want to guess how they went from a huge, you know, apparently they used to take five double-decker busloads of kids away to camps, and it was thriving. Within 30 years, it was gone. Anyone want to guess? No. Christians moved out. It's connected to that. Here's what killed us. Uh, Government revitalization killed us. Can you believe that? And so, Nidri's had a 350 million pound, almost half a billion pound facelift now. It doesn't look anything like it used to look 20 years ago. And when you um, have to regenerate an area, you have to move the poorest. So they get shipped off out, shipped off to other places, and a 200 grand townhouse suddenly gets built on the place where your grand's family have lived for 100 years. And that has caused real problems, but that, that revitalization killed the community aspect of the church because the church didn't know how to adapt. The mission hall didn't know how to deal with the new uh, reality. And it didn't know how to deal with it, largely because these mission halls were gospel centers, but they weren't discipling centers. And so a posh dude from Charlotte, you know, the assistant pastor's got a young whippersnapper, wants to give him, the, you know, give him training in the gospel. Where's the best place to send him? Well, let's not use it on our folk. Let's send him to one of the schemes. You know, he can break his teeth, almost literally, uh, in a scheme, preach, and then get out of town. And so they were left with a lack of vision, a lack of forward planning, a lack of investment in local leadership. And without vision, without investment, and without discipleship and leadership, churches die, right? It doesn't have to be from poor areas. We know that as a fact. So that's what happened. So what happened then? They arrived. They had a big history. It was going to shut its doors. They didn't want the gospel light to go out in that area. So the church did what big churches do. And 50 or so people made a commitment to go uh, to the scheme and, um, and so what they did was they started meeting there on Sundays uh, to continue the gospel witness. Uh, they drove in every week. They worshipped on a Sunday, and um, they appointed a number of legitimate pastors. They had the usual churchy things that churchy people like to do, which is you've got to have a midweek meeting, Right? Yes, that's in the New Testament, and you've got to have um, leafleting, because that was one of Paul's things as well, 
and you know the usual churchy gig being derogatory uh, uh, they just did what Christiany people do we don't know the area we don't live in the area we don't come from the area but we'll drive in we'll make a noise on a Sunday we'll hand out the odd leaflet and we'll try and be nice to people we'll smile at them we'll be as welcoming them as we can um, and here's what happened local people almost immediately and I know this now because Steve and other of the boys who, are, who are now make up my church gave me the history when they were lads 20 years ago throwing bricks through the windows some of these guys are now members of our church by the way um, and so what happened is the locals clocked these posh outsiders and remember I'm not a, it's not a negative it's perspective it doesn't make it true I'm giving you perspective, okay? Um, these posh outsiders coming in, cars got smashed, uh, members were beaten up in the street, windows went through. I think the budget for um, vandalism was somewhere around 20,000 a year. And so these well-meaning, lovely, nice, godly in the main people who thought, yes, we're going to take the gospel to Nidri, got there and were met with a wave of hostility. So what happens after a while? Your 50 people soon sharpen off, don't they? Who wants to do that? Hearts get hardened. Well, they're rats anyway, so screw them, right? Well, and people just wandered off and uh, by the time I'd got there, the excitement had long gone. <laughs> and people drifted away from the church, no vision, nothing, just depression. And when I'd arrived, they'd not seen a convert for almost two decades. They were beaten down, they were defeated. They had spent three quarters of a million on a new state-of-the-art building. Within eight hours of its opening, every single bulletproof window had gone through. And people were just distraught about it. And they were wondering, what, what's going on? What, why can't we get off the ground? And um, they were, sorry, they were still sort of persevering. A few of them now, I think there's about 30 or so when I arrived, persevering, but no clue how to turn things around. And so when I arrived... In 2007, I was basically Charlotte Chapel's last throw of the dice. I, you know, they're scraping the barrel, right? This little fella, you know, let's just throw him at it. Um, and um, so that's seven and a half years ago. We've had ups and downs. I remember in the early days when balaclava kids would come into the service with iron bars and smash the place up. When you couldn't open the church door, you had to have someone guarding your back because the house bricks came flying through. I mean, it's all boring now, but it was, they were good days. And I mean that seriously. Um, I moved in to the area. Uh, that was a big thing. I got arrested on my first day. That was probably the best evangelistic thing our church <laughs> has ever done. Arrested for stealing my own car. Um, 24 hours literally in the scheme driving from the church to my house and then, then the, the, busy, the police um, the police pull up, lights everything bang, I'm on the back of the car face down, cuffed I'm like, fellas, what's the crack? 
And uh, they're like, this, you know, your Nick's son, this car's registered to a Reverend McConnell. And all my neighbors are out. I mean, I'm literally moving my boxes in the house. My, my wife, who is such a delicate thing, is stood there freaking out like, what's happening? Like, I've done nothing, love. I'm innocent. Free the Nidri one. But it was like, <laughs> right, boys, I am the Reverend McConnell. Policeman's getting really irate with me. Don't you take the absolute pee out of me, son. You're done. I'm like, right, boys, just I'm reach in my pocket for my wallet. Got my card out. Saw my driving license, and they were absolutely, it was brilliant. I wish I'd have took a picture. They were mortified. And they're like, what the heck? What? And they're trying to share the, I said, they said, what the heck, what are you doing here? And I said, well, I've come to share the good news of Jesus, boys. They were, right, cuffs off. See you later, son. <laughs> Neighbours thought I was some sort of international drug pin. I actually bought the house off a guy who was a major dealer, right? And so the new guy moves into town, and he's huckled by the police. I'm obviously some sort of secret agent. So I'd be walking around, this, and the, this press got over it, got hold of it. The new, new rev gets nicked or something. Oh, and the papers, people are walking down the street, people are leaning out their window going, Hey, Father. They always call me Father. Father Ted. <laughs> hey, Father Ted, have you got any crack? Have you got any... It's like... Did, but you know what? It served... The paper, inadvertently, at least for them, printed my testimony. What the heck am I doing there? And then all these guys got to hear about this guy who used to be in jail, was one of them. And slowly but surely, we got to know people. I start, we started, how long have I got? My cool, just under, you know, just the, the mafiosa over there, uh, staring. Um, I started a prayer meeting. So when I first went there, I knew nobody, Lucas, nobody. I had no clue, no relationship. Here's another thing, um, and you'll understand this. I'm Irish. My dad's Scottish. I'm Irish. I sound English in a scheme. Flipping heck. Um, and so it was hard. You know, they think he's a little English fella. And um, they're not the most popular in Scottish housing schemes. So I started a prayer meeting. Met. I started at 6 a.m., uh, in the morning, went down to the church. I'd go to the same route. I'd walk, I'd chat to people, I'd talk to people, I'd find out people's names, I'd put them on a prayer board. I did that every um, day for two years. Uh, no one was converted. I just kept praying for everybody I met. I pray for them, pray for them, pray for them. We've had a prayer meeting in our church Monday through Saturday and Sunday, every day for seven and a half years. Want to know the key to my ministry? That's the key to my ministry, because I'm a clown. I'd mess it up. So I was serious. We were in serious business. And I'm not there like I was in the early days, but my whole team meets now. It's 9 till 10 every morning to pray. Pray, pray, pray. I've made my, I hired a woman uh, very quickly, worked that out. You need to hire women quickly in council estates because in uh, uh, Scotland, uh, at least 55 to 60% of all women in schemes are, or people in schemes are women. Uh, 90% of our women have been sexually abused. It's hiring men, just so you know that. Um, and out of the last 15 ministers that had been in its 100-year history, 70% had, had adulterous affairs when I went through the history. Uh, because any, any dis the, the intensive discipleship, which we'll get onto in the last session, needed, required to teach and to grow converts is so... Intense. It just can't be done, male and female. 
because any, so, any sense of li- being a good listener or being helpful is taken as sexual um, attraction. And I, and I caught this early on with my boys, one of my boys. He's not the best looker, you know, he's got three teeth and a few tats, and um, he goes, Mez, what? Oh, these lassies love me, pal. And I'm like, what? He goes, the lassies in this church, they're all over me. It's just like, you know what I mean? I'm like, calm yourself, Rocket. What? Tell me. He goes, well, every time I see one of them, I'm like, how you doing? What's happening? Um, Do you like a cup of tea, you know, at the church thing? I'm like, mate, they're being, it's called being nice to you. They're not throwing their underwear at you, son. Calm yourself. And he'd mistaken kindness for making a move. And we worked that out very early on. Just because our culture is so messed up. You know, no love, nothing. Love is lust, and it's all messed up. And we have to be very careful about that. So made some good uh, decisions there, I think, in hiring people. Um, where am I? I um, taught the church about what it means to be church. I killed formality without dishonoring Christ, because you can do that, okay? I don't wander around being cool for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of being a lad. I want to honor, I honor the Lord in everything. In everything. But I think you don't have to be formal and miserable about it. I built mutual discipleship culture based on Titus 2, one up, one down, older men, younger men, older women, younger women. Um, I, we began to ask posh Christians, they hate this one, how's your walk with Jesus? You want to you make a, uh, a, posh, a posh guy in a suit sweat, just ask him that on Sunday. Yeah, he wants to, they want to debate with me about my over-realized eschatology or something. I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. How's your walk with Jesus? Um, he used to avoid me in the street. It was hilarious. Um, I invited people to come to me and talk about Jesus. I never invited them to come to our services. In fact, the best evangelistic thing I ever did was said to people, don't come to our church. It sucks, and I know I'm the pastor. You want to come and talk to me about Jesus. I want to help invite you into a relationship with Jesus, not into a set of meetings with some people that I know. And so we worked on that. Actually, what happened was everyone's like, because we're so contrary, they're like, well, screw you, pal. I'm coming to your church on Sunday. <laughs> All right, well, come, but you'll be bored out of your napper. Well, no. Then when they would sit there like that, was it boring? Yeah, but I'm still coming. All right. <laughs> That was better than the Alpha course. Um, and so, um, to date, just so you know, almost 100% of our combat, we've moved from 13, seven and a half years to about 100-ish on a Sunday. I have 70 members. Pretty much everything we've got is indigenous growth. And so our tipping point happened five years in, where indigenous converts outnumbered the core that I'd inherited, and that's when culture did change. But until that point... It's a balancing act. And even now, it's a balancing act. Just say that. Nidri is a failing church in many ways, and we've got a lot of things wrong. But these are the things that we started to do. Um, Today, almost 100% of our converts have been converted outside of a Sunday service or any meeting that we've done. I've seen no converts from any event we've ever put on. 
Just take that one if you want and do with it what you like. Um, and um, we have a heavy emphasis on discipleship. We have a heavy emphasis on daily discipleship. So guys in the schemes would meet with me every single day to study the Bible. And um, we uh, have a heavy emphasis now on church membership. They come into membership very quickly, but obviously get baptized as adults. I can say that here. Uh, and um, I will say to my Presbyterian friends, by the way, about Scotland, um, the, the, the question of adult or infant baptism is moot for a generation. Let's get some converts who are having babies first, then we can have the debate. Um, at the moment, only people getting baptized in the scheme are adults because nobody else is being saved. Um, and so um, I bit, we talk a lot about responsibility and we are very uh, keen on the concept of church discipline. All words that freak out well-meaning, nice middle-class people who just want to help the poor and give them stuff. We run no mercy ministries, food banks, soup kitchens, nothing. And we are seeing many people come to faith in Christ, be discipled, um, growing into positions of responsibility and leadership, and hopefully in the next few years through 20 schemes, truly indigenous men and women planting churches. Um, that's how I took it from yeah, Charlotte to where we are today. Is that okay? Cool. Thanks. Tom doing an amazing job with the stopwatch, obviously. I did my assistantship in the church that Tom's the clerk of session in. He does that with the ministers as well, so <laughs> don't take it personally, mess. Questions in a moment or two, again, reflecting on some of the stuff that, that, that Mez has shared with us. But I know listening to Mez, there's a few things I've picked up in terms of stuff that I know. I thought, gosh, yeah, okay, I've tried that, done that, whoops. What about you guys around the table? What are the lessons that we can learn? What are the lessons you can learn in your situation from the journey of Charlotte Chapel, the journey even more recently over these last few years that, that, that Mez has led that church on? Have a chat, and we'll come back together in a few moments for questions.
Folks, I'm, I'm loath to break into the conversations yet, yet again, but Tom, Tom's keeping us on a tight lease here. Just chatting with, with Mez, Mez is, is very aware that, that a lot of what he's sharing, to be honest, each of these sessions could be, could be a day's block in, in, in itself. Um, if, if, I suppose as, as I've chatted with Mez, as I've listened to, to some of the conversations, as, as I've just watched around the room, there, there's very much a sense of this, this might just simply be a taster for us. Um, and if this is something that, that, that you guys would like developed, please make sure you put that on the evaluation form. There, there's no reason why potentially we couldn't bring Mez back for a, for, for a, longer, a longer slot um, and, and focus you know, very much making sure that we're, we're scratching where, where, where folks are, are itching. So do write things down that, that, that are particularly on, on your mind if we don't have a chance to, to address those, because we, we don't want this simply to be just a program for the sake of having something at Bangor Worldwide. We, we want to be able to, to, to be a service. But to serve you, are there any particular questions at the moment, again, relating specifically in, in terms of, I suppose, Charlotte Chapel's journey and, and, the, and the work that Mez has been on? Thank you. Uh, Mez, uh, you mentioned that you basically told them not to come to church, but you wanted them to come to talk to you about Jesus and you meet with people for Bible studies. Where did you encounter those people? How, do, how did you get to the point where you could actually say that to them? Um, yeah, I mean, I live in the area, right? Um, I'm hanging out. I've got we, our, our building operates, our building's open seven days a week and we operate like a community cafe out of our, our building and it's just a social space, you know, we've got a big giant flat screen TV and sofas and we just hang out and that and eat, eat bacon butties. We, we like knocking out the old bacon butties and um, having a brew and um, I just met, I met, we met guys through there, just sitting and talking. Um, you know, I mean now like, one of the first things I started was playing football with the local lads. I had a space, I had a gym. We now, I've been running a football team for seven years with all the local lunatics. Um, and the schemes, are just, they're, like, they're very close communities and so everyone knows who you are even though they don't know who you are. Do you know what I'm saying? And so they know you're there even if you never met them. And so people would um, get to know us. I mean, it's hard to say because if you're a cultural outsider and I'm not, it must be hard to think, how the, how the heck do we make contact? And it's a hard question to answer because I'm not, I'm one of the lads, right? I'd rather be with the boys than meeting the mayor yesterday for lunch, let's say. You know what, that was a sweaty moment. But, um, and so just the, the, the day-to-day thing of life. Here's a, here's a cultural thing I learned. When I first came to the church, um, people were saying to me, you are mad, leaving Brazil. Brazil was a successful ministry. We planted a successful church. It was buzzing, right? And this church was dead. No one had been converted a long time. And the basic premise was, why it's, it's, this is the line, Edinburgh, well, Scotland is a spiritual graveyard. Edinburgh is dead. The schemes are dead. This is your worst nightmare. And it just wasn't true, right? It's not true. Um, and what happens was they just equated their failure to reach out with spiritual deadness. But every single... I, in the early days, I had to make appointments with dudes, which I never do, um, to talk to them about the Lord. And I literally didn't have enough time in the day. Geezer would come to talk to me about Jesus, 
and, and the gospel and what about this? You know, my bairns have died. Can you explain this? What about this, that, and the other? And again, a lot of suspicion about the church, but I didn't push that line. I just pushed the gospel, Christ. Um, and so, um, and again, we're not like in, you know, that I was saying at a men's breakfast this week, the number one apologetic question in my community is, uh, is hell real? Are we going to hell? I'll bet you a million quid. It's not a topic of conversation, you know, with cheese and wine night round at Dorothy and Victor's. You know what I mean? I don't know. It's Dorothy and Victor, if you're out there, I'm sorry about that. But maybe you like brie. But, um, and so um, what happened is outside cultural outsiders had taken their whole worldview, their culture, their culture's apologetics, had missed, had missed by a mile, and then put that down to a lack of spiritual interest. And so it was, it's easy, it's embarrassing for me. I've got friends planting in one of the richest areas in Edinburgh, really affluent, a couple of miles from us. He's the warrior, not me. I can talk about Jesus all day long. It's a breeze. He's got to deal with geezers who've got two jags on the drive, a million pound house, a few quid in the bank, and they're playing the game like they've got it sorted. And so... Yeah, so that's a long answer to your question, but just to throw a few of the cultural things in there, it's easy if you're there. If you're driving in on Sunday for an hour and you can't wait to get back out before your tyres get slashed, it's not so easy. Mess, you said in the early days that you hired some woman for the ministry. Yeah. Where did you get the money to do that? So, from the Lord. And uh, you, you think that's facetious, I know. And, but that's the true answer. Here's the thing. So currently, I think we're training about 50 people. I have a membership of 70. I think our budget is, and you know, if you want to stick money in the envelopes, do, because we need your money. Uh, but um, we, I remember Sharon, I met Sharon. She'd been in the church 11 years, gifted, right, gobby, Shabba. I mean, right, Stephen? Oh, tell you what, you don't want to get in an arm wrestling competition. She'll smash her. And... Um, scheme lass, been around, knew the tricks, had been sidelined for years by pastors who just thought, she's too, too, she's too hard work. And um, I quickly spotted straight away, she knows local girls. She knows these lasses. And um, I thought, we need to hire her. It was a few days a week, we need to get some money. So I t- the church was about 30 people at the time. I took it, I remember a lot of them were quite affluent dudes. Um, and um, I said, listen, I think it was about 24 grand someone said we needed for everything, you know, know, the the laws are different, you have to pay like 30% of it to the government, and um, I went to the chapel, and they're like, oh, no, 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 and I thought, oh, stuff that, so I I took it, not the best, I know, I I took that, I went to the the congregation, said, look, there's about 20 of us in the room, I said, look, I want to do this, Here's the vision. We're going forward, you know. Um, I want to hire this lassie, and um, this is how much I need. And everyone laughed. And within six days, we had 24 grand. And Sharon's never been out of work. She's worked for me ever since. And so every time I've took it to the Lord, he's, he's, he's given me the cash. So I just te- keep taking stuff to the Lord, outrageous stuff. He doesn't give me the cash all the time, so he's like, calm yourself, little man. But... Um, <laughs> But generally, you know, the Lord doesn't provide for a need that doesn't exist. I'm going to talk about this, about the lack of faith out here. But um, I'm going to talk about this. I don't need, 
I took it to the, the Lord, and he provided. I mean, I'm not the smartest guy on the planet, but I'm pretty confident that God says he'll provide for us, right? And I'm pretty confident as well is most of us don't have because we don't ask. And we're bottlers. That's just my opinion, though. Miss, you, you uh, mentioned about the early days. It took about five oh. years to start, so things start to kick off. Yeah. Obviously, Charlotte Chapel had put a lot of resources in before that. And yeah. As you say, you were their last, yeah. last hope. What was the relationship then over those early years with yeah. you and Charlotte Chapel practically? Yeah. Uh, and and how, what were the expectations or pressures in you yeah. from the bigger so, church? So what they did is they do what post churches with money do, is they controlled it by committee. And um, what I had to do was come in and have a report. I used to have to go in. If you wanted to make a decision, I don't know, like, and I'm not joking, change put some locks on a door. You had to go to the committee. They'd have to, you have to wait for them to have a meeting. They'd have a meeting, and they'd come back and tell you whether you could change the locks on the door. But by that time, I'd change the locks and the door. So, um, but, you know, I, I was good. Uh, um, I had to go and do an elders report once a month and report to the elders. There's about 30 of them at the time, probably more. Sit in a room, all these dudes in suits, and report on the progress you had to give numbers, you had to give how much was coming in. I mean, it was, you know, it was hardcore. It was the SS. And, um, I mean, I found the whole thing bizarre, right? Uh, and I did it for a while. And then I had to go to these other meetings where they were business meetings for the chapel. And they'd sit and discuss things like, well, we're thinking of getting sort of new urinals in the chapel and this and that. And I'd be sitting here like this thinking, why am I sitting in meetings? talking about Charlotte Chapel's toilets with dudes I don't even know when I should be back on the scheme. And so quickly I talked to the leader and said, look, I'm not coming to your, meet I'm not coming to your toilet meetings anymore. Um, or, or whatever it was, you know, there's a, there's a crack in the ceiling, whatever. And I'm like, I'm not coming. Because what happened is this. Charlotte Chapel had a, had a ministry. And Charlotte Chapel are a good church. This is on public record and there's no problem. And they know this. We've discussed this over the years. Um, that... that they were a big church with a big ministry. I guess it was a million pound budget at the time, right? And I think we got about 10 grand a year of it or something given into it. And it, it came under like boys' brigade as a ministry line. Do you understand what I'm saying? For them, it was a ministry. It was a ministry line in their church. So that's what it is. You come and report like the boys' brigade leader would give a report, right? A Nidri mission boy, you come in and give a report. And I, I quickly searched this and said, this is not, it's not there for you. It's not happening. This is what's going to happen. I'm going to send one of the leaders. They, what they've done as well is they put three Charlotte Chapel elders into eldership. And, um, and none of them lived in again. It was all, you know, it was, it was weird. And um, I just sent those dudes. I said, listen, what you're going to do is, you three, take it in turns if you like, whoever likes it the most. Go and sit in the elders meeting and give reports. I'm just going to get on with business. And... Um, and so there were a few, few, what had happened is over the years, they controlled it by committee so much. So guys were making decisions about Nidru who'd never set foot in the area. They just heard reports. Listen, churches do this all the time. If you employ a guy uh, and, it, and it's built on trust, and, and I did have accountability, but you know, you know, you've got to get a guy to do the work. 
but you're just going to kill it. I see it time and again, death by committee. And so within a couple of years, actually, we became self-sustaining anyway, which surprised them all. And I said, you keep your 10 grand. And about three years ago, we became, you know, an independent church. We've got our own eldership, our own leadership, you know, manage our own finances and our, and our own affairs. And I'm still really good pals of all the guys at the chapel. And what's happened is we're now partnering with them and 20 Schemes planning a church in the scheme next to us. But this time we're in the driving seat and they're learning. And that's what I'm calling true partnership. Are you with me? It's not just about taking their money, but it's about learning together how we do it better for the glory of the kingdom. So it was difficult, but I'm not a good example. I basically used to go to meetings having made a decision and they'd sit there and go, well, why hasn't it come to the committee? And I'd go, oh, I slipped my mind. <laughs> oh, I forgot about it. Oh, did I, do I have to do that? I got away with that for about a year. <laughs> and then came clean and said, this isn't happening. So, um, yeah. It's a good question, that. Okay. We have time for one last quick question with okay. a reasonably quick answer. Okay, my question is, um, are you made for this work? And what I mean by that is, is it possible to go and get someone who is, you know, what sort of people do you choose for your 20 schemes? Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm, you're not probably going to go and get upper class guys from uni to come into your... Yeah. So that's my, that's my question. Yes, I am. For, and I, yes, I am, and I do. Yeah. Absolutely possible. People get 20 schemes all wrong, because I give a lot of chat about middle class people, and they all get their noses put out of joint and think I've got a chip on my shoulder. I've got the chippy on my shoulder, so don't worry about it. Um, it's 20 gospel churches in 20 poor communities. I have guys in my church who work in the city. They've never done a thing, wrong thing in their life. They are highly educated. I've got a guy with two PhDs in something I can't pronounce. And I've got guys with no teeth who've never worked a lick in their life. They come together, we worship Jesus Christ, we try and work together to understand one another, learn from one another, and grow in Christ. That's the gospel. And so I will hire those who are... My assistant pastor lives... Parents live in a three million pound Kensington mansion. He has a man bag. And... <laughs> Lucas is looking a bit shady now. And um, he watches Downton Abbey, right? I mean, it is shameful, but he's an absolute, he's gold. He's a better pastor than I'll ever be. He's a gentle, kind, spirited, godly man, much more so than me. And without him, Nidri would not work. And my team is multicultural in that sense. So I'm building multicultural team. Here's the problem. There are no believers in the schemes. I need the educated university Christian types to stop thinking about the career ladder and come and join us for, the, for a revolution. That's what we need. There's your answer. Thanks. Thank you, Matt. On, on, that, on that high note, which was a high note, uh, and hopefully encouraging us, we are going to take just a five, six minute break. We'll aim to, to kick off here again at, at 10.2. Um, there will be some additional refreshments coming to, to your tables. Um, I think there are some of the scones that are, are still left from this morning. Um, if you do want to take a, a couple of moments at this stage, there's a question that I would love to ask that's not on your evaluation form, and, and that's basically, where are you from? I don't want the name of a church. Don't even necessarily want the name of a locality. But how would you describe where you're ministering? 
Because I suspect there'll be folks here who are suburban congregations with or suburban settings with middle-class congregations who perhaps have a, a, a housing estates somewhere within their parish area. There'll be those who are working in an urban setting, but their congregation is largely suburban because they drive in every Sunday morning and then drive out again. And, and there'll be all sorts of other variations of that. On the back of the evaluation form, it would be helpful for us just to get a, a feel for, for who's here and, and help us to understand the answers and responses that you're giving. If, if you could give a description in just a few words of, uh, of where it is you're seeking to, to, to minister in, in Christ's name. So, we'll be back here again at, at 10 to.
Okay, folks, if I can encourage you to take your seats again, we'll begin to make a start. conversations I've had with a couple of folks. It's encouraging to know that people are finding this useful, finding it helpful, points of connection, not just from what Mez is saying, but around the table discussions as well, and we trust that that will continue. We've heard Mez's perceptions of the church looking in from the outside. We've heard something of, of the story of the planting of that church. But what are the principles? What are the, what are the things we need to be able to take away that we can maybe employ in, in our particular context, whatever they might happen to be, to move it from that comfortable place of how we like it to that place where things are actually needed maybe slightly differently. Yes. Cool. So Tom told me to say some things about what, Tom? Leadership and church service. Okay. Um, two minutes then. So Nidri Community Church, we have five elders now. Three of us are full-time. So my eldership consists of men in their 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s. Again, pick that on purpose to get a cross-generational age range. Keeps us fresh, what I find with churches who are struggling to cope with the reality of the modern world tend to have much older leadership exclusively, and that's dangerous, I think. Uh, my church services... Oh yeah, so I have a ministry team of five people, full-time, senior team, that's our core. So we think of Nidri as a sort of training hub. There are three women and two men on that senior team, and um, they've all made commitments to Nidri for the next 15 to 20 years. I then have, most of them have been with me for at least six years. Then I have, um, I think it's eight church planters at the moment. We're training across three cities, and uh, we have, I can't remember how many women we're training, I think it's about 12 or 13 women across different ranges in training. We have a number of interns, I can't remember, and, sorry Tom, I'm not being very good, am I? And um, basically from the moment of conversion, we, um, we, we take people in and we put them through what we call our pathway to service. My job as a minister is to prepare all God's people for works of service. Hence my comments about soup kitchens, etc. These things are not bad per se. I think what happens is they put a glass ceiling in. It becomes an outreach and people don't tend users, service users, become merely service users and not participants in the kingdom of God. And I'm aware as well, I've been invited here, given these three little things. I'm throwing out one-liners, some of which we want to chew on, right? Um, I'm happy to come back. I mean, I do three, I do a one-day session on mercy ministry, if not what. 
um, and stuff like that, and sessions on discipleship and sessions on growing the church. These are all things I do. So if you want me to come back with 20 schemes and do something more specific, I'm dead happy to do that. Um, so I'm sorry if this is like just me throwing stuff and just you know walking off stage. Um, I'm just trying to think of as many things as I can. And then my service. So my service on Sunday is absolutely <coughs> mind-numbingly ordinary. And we, um, it's an hour long. When I inherited it, it was two hours long. Yeah. Uh, even I was asleep, and I was having to speak through most of it. Um, and um, uh, again, the, the church, Charlotte Chapel, made this mistake. They imported their service to Nidri. So when I first went for my interview, some guy stood up to give a children's talk address. Do you do that here? Children's things? It's a bit of a weird thing Christians do. And... Um, it was 20 minutes long on the Minor Prophets. I remember it. 20 minutes, right? I mean, even I learned something, so it was pretty good. Uh, but the problem was, I looked around. There were no children in the service. It was freaky. And, and then a guy stood up and spoke for 30 minutes, and then they had communion, and then that was another 25-minute talk and hymns. It was brutal. And so I killed it, obviously, as painlessly as possible by just saying this sucks, we're not doing it anymore. And now it's an hour service on a Sunday morning and it, 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 we just have, sing some songs. Sometimes we get happy and excited. Sometimes we're reflective and not so excited. I mean, it's Scotland, right? I mean, the most charismatic you're going to get is a raised eyebrow. <laughs> so, you know, sometimes we have a couple of raised eyebrows. Uh, we're getting really into it. Um, we're quite a chilled out church in that regards. We, have, we start with the reading of the word always. We want people to understand that when the Bible is open, God speaks. And we want to pray, we sing. 60% of the hour is me teaching. So that's a lie that says we can't listen or we're uneducated or we don't read the most difficult people to get to read a book are not my local guys, but my middle-class outsiders. Just leave that one with you. And the most troublesome people to me are Christianized people in their 20s and 30s. The greatest asset to our church are men and women over the age of 50. Another little lie told by culture. So I'll leave that one with you as well. Does that help? So I love all people. Okay. So the third one, lessons. So I've, I've, I've listened, I jotted a few things down earlier this morning. Again, you know, uh, without sounding self-serving, in, uh, at the end of the year, Crossway uh, is pu- um, publishing my book called Church in Hard Places, how to grow um, healthy local churches in our council estates and harder to reach areas. And so look out for it, Church in Hard Places. There's a lots of principles there that I can't get round to today, but again, if you want me to come back, I am more than willing to come back and serve the church. So, a couple of lessons. Firstly, one, seminaries, Bible colleges, whatever you need to call them, uh, need to adapt. If we're going to move um, into reaching um, and growing gospel churches in our council estates, the system has to change. The system that you live and I live and work in, the theological system, the denominational systems, all these things will have to adapt. That's the first uncontroversial 
thing to say. Uh, you and they are not catering for our communities. Um, we need a grassroots movement of theological training for men and women from estates at local church level. Young men and women being trained in theological seminaries today, and I'm sure they're great, you know, Oak Hill and the blah, 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 and all these places to churn out lovely sounding preachers with three points and a beautiful illustration. Wonderful. They are not turning out people who are coming with a heart for council estate ministry and council estates. And that needs to be addressed, largely because the culture is middle class, the cost is prohibitive for guys um, from our background. And one of the things that 20 schemes exist for, and we'll talk about that tonight, is we exist, most of, a lot of the fundraising I do, I'm just a professional beggar, by the way, um, is for what we call our indigenous fund. We give grants to men and women from council estates. We believe in the importance of theological education, but we believe that it needs to be accessible. And so one of the things that we're doing is working in partnerships with uh, theological institutions in Scotland and in England, and hopefully with Acts 29 uh, Europe. Acts 29 Europe, actually Acts 29 can get a bad press. They're good fellas who listen to us <laughs> and take us very seriously and have been really helpful to us. Um, a little shout out for the A29 crew there. Um, but they're listening, and I think denominations and institutions need to listen to what we're saying without being offended. We need you. We need to be theologically educated. But the current status quo is not helping us. The chasm between the church is enormous. Can you imagine the chasm between the church and the institutions around them? So please do with that what you want. Um, the current, again I said the current status quo is not producing planters or pastors willing to go to these estates in sufficient numbers. I don't know if you did your demographic research, but in my demographic research, 40% of, is it 40 or 60? 40%, I think, minimum, 40% of Scotland live in housing estates. I'm willing to bet there's a quite a high percentage of the population of Ireland live in council estates. How much of the proportion, are they proportionally represented in our giving, in our mission, in our training, and in our sending out? I'm willing to bet they're not. Um, and that's why little scruffy dudes like me come and speak to nice people like you. Um, I don't have the answers, so you know. I'm just telling you how I see the, the problems, but they, they can be resolved. Um, we need to be publishing contextually relevant evangelism and discipleship material. Alpha courses do not work for us, by and large. We are not a course-driven culture. We are a relationship-driven culture. I'll sit and talk with you about Jesus for four hours. Invite me to a course. It's pretty brutal. And again, that's a cultural thing. We don't sit around the table talking about the Nicene Creed or whatever. Um, but we will sit in a non-relaxed non -relaxed environment and chill. And our evangelism is much more 
You know, if, you know, there's a phrase in Luke, isn't that? Jesus was always on the way somewhere. He was always mooching about, wasn't he, Jesus? The people who were with him. Well, on the scheme, we're always mooching somewhere to the shop, to the chemist, to this. All of that evangelism and quite a lot of our discipleship happens on the way and requires it. You know your Bible a great deal, doesn't it? Um, but we need contextually relevant material. One of the things 20 Schemes is doing is writing and developing currently. The, the book is the first one, Church in Hard Places. Our second title is called Women in Hard Places, developing and growing um, women's ministry to reach those in council estates. And then we're producing a, a whole series of workbooks and discipleship uh, material. We also want to produce it at a low cost for people. So my, like my, um, my testimony book is about seven quid or something. I don't know. I wrote the little glossy one for 80p. That's far more financially accessible. But we need to get a grip of that, um, that whole industry. You know, everything from illustrations about cricket and rugger, and they're all good, but, um, you know, you know what I'm saying, right? Contextualize. Um, we need, here's, here's the other thing. We need to take huge risks in training. Um, I take on interns that would make some of your hair curl, some of it grow back. Um, risky. Very, very new converts. Um, one of our first converts was a young woman called um, Tash. She was an absolute pain in my jacksie. And um, she'd come into church going, shut up, the Bible's rubbish, and she'd be swearing, Jesus isn't real, and shove it. And then, hilariously, got converted. And um, she uh, worked for Greg's, about 17, 18, worked for, no, she's about 19 or 20. Tasha? Stephen? How old's Tash? 20? One? He doesn't know. He doesn't know. He's playing Angry Birds on his phone. Uh, and um, I trained them well. Anyway, this girl was young. She'd been saved about three months. And my women's director came to me, Sharon, and said, look, I think we ought to give this girl a job. She's a local girl. She knows everyone. She knows all the girls. She's telling all these girls who talk about Jesus. Can we take her on as an intern? I said, yeah, let's do that then. How much will it cost? It's about £8,000. We didn't have £8,000. I took it to the elders. Half of them had heart attacks. Um, the other just looking at me going, well, that's a bit dumb. And I'm thinking, yeah, it's a bit dumb, but she's a cultural insider. The amount of women and young girls that she's influencing is amazing. And I think if we brought her inside, paid her the equivalent of Greg's part-time, she's a hard worker, and uh, we can um, give her some on-the-job training, she can make a massive impact. She has made a huge, she works for us now, three years later, she's a youth and children's um, worker, Tash. She's gone from reading the Bible to being a youth and children's, from never reading a Bible to a youth and children's worker in three years, gets paid full-time now. It's led a lot of girls to the Lord, runs a lot of discipleship for young women um, on the estate. She was brilliant. For every Tasha, I've got about nine epic failures who sucked at it, gave up, messed up, were a nightmare, are still a nightmare. 
um, but we take huge risks. Here's what happens. Middle-class churches say, prove yourself, and then I'll give you a shot. Our way is, give all of them responsibility until they prove themselves unable. And um, basically, most pastors are control freaks. And you like to be in charge, and you like to be at the meeting about what colour the flowers should be. I mean, my mum went to Nidri, and they, this woman came up to me and goes, oh, pastor, I'm like, what's happening? And she's, um, do you know, we're getting a new fan fitted for the hob in the kitchen. What model do you think we should have? I'm like, what? What the, what the heck do I know about model of fans? Just get a nice shiny one or something. And, and, and I soon found out people were coming to me with all these questions and I found out actually what had happened is the previous culture, the pastor had sat on every committee. And I'm like, that, that's not happening. I, I mean, you know, I'm barely awake listening to myself. Never mind, stuff like that. So that culture has the change of being a control freak and the guy, the guy was in charge of everything. If you want your church to grow and leaders to develop, you have to give power away. But here's the scary one. You might have to give some of it away to absolute lunatics from council estates. Here's my experience of 17 years in ministry. Those who we give opportunities to serve the quickest almost invariably mature more than those we just relegate to be service users. And this is one of my points about mercy ministry. That creates an us and them mentality. It creates a service user mentality. It, re- it, it creates a receiving only mentality. We want to create a responsibility to serve God mentality. There are no unemployed in the kingdom of God. Um, he's connected to this one. Don't be scared of failure. Pastors are control freaks, and they're all scared of failure. They all like listening to other churches' stories, and if someone's doing well, they're gutted. And if someone's doing really bad, they feel really good about themselves. That's our gig, right? In, I'm a church planter. That's the, the numbers game kills us because that's what gets played. The busier you are, the more successful you look. And what happens is, and I feel it, the, the young whippersnappers are coming in on the scene, giving it this, that, and the other. Um, and show some respect, young men, by the way. Because some warriors in this room have been doing it a while and they might have something good to teach us. So show a bit of respect. But old dudes... Show some respect too, because the older we get, the more conservative we become. It's like, I'm 42 now, and believe it or not, I'm feeling like I'm getting more conservative. My whole team laugh at me about that, but that's why I like having 20-something young guys and girls around, because they push the buttons and they've got fresh thoughts, you know what I mean? They've got fresh thoughts. And I like having the older guys around, because they've been there. Um, being old and wise doesn't mean saying... We tried that, but it failed. That's not wisdom, by the way. That's destruction and heartbreaking. So we've got to be not scared of failure. I 
base my ministry on the parable of the sower. That's encouraging, right? Jesus said, prepare for 75% failure. I'll take that. I'm up around 90%, but, you know, trying to get it down every week. But um, Here's one. I've heard a few pastors here, and I hear it all the time in the UK. Um, we need to repent of our lack of faith. We lack faith in God to change people's hearts, to change our hearts. And I know I talk about class and I talk about this, that and the other, but the gospel transcends all social barriers. Paul was a Jew of Jews, right? I mean, he was, you know, he probably dressed up in some right old weird outfits and he went to the Gentiles. You know? So this, this kind of guy from uni or can, this person, this is irrelevant to me. Most of the time I poke the middle classes is because they're asleep at the wheel. And you've got the resources and the functions and the wherewithal, and we need some of it. Um, and, but we lack faith. We really do. People say to me, it's all right for you. You've got interns. I had nothing. I had 30 people beaten and broken. Nothing. All I had was faith in Jesus and trusting in the gospel and a willingness to hang out on the edge. Now, I know it's easy for me to say that because I'm not in a denomination I'm in an affiliation, and some of us maybe feel pressure from den- with denominational structures to be less um, radical, but I still want to make that challenge to us. There is a radical problem in our council estates. They do not have the gospel, and that radical problem is going to need more to resolve than hand-wringing, feeling bad, inviting small dudes to conferences. It's going to involve men and women of faith stepping out, trusting in the gospel, and going for it. I don't know about you dudes, I'm going out all guns blazing. That's how I'm going to the grave. Simple as that. I would suggest you do the same. The problem with some of us is we don't have because we don't ask. Have you asked for an intern? If you ask the Lord to provide, because my Bible says, you know, ask and you receive. Which of us, you know, you know, and it's not prosperity gospel, you know, before you all start freaking out on me. But we do have a prosperity gospel as well, right? If you know what I'm saying. Anyway, I'll get off before I say something dodgy. Um, here's the problem. Our God is too small and our hearts are too fearful and we need to repent. Some other things. One, uh, next. Understand language and people. Interesting, when, um, a couple of things. When I first started out and um, somebody um, went to a church service once and this Christian guy came up to us and goes, oh, hello, Mez, how are you, brother? You know the usual drill. How did you find that? So there's a minister. I said, oh, I thought it was pretty crap and I thought you were a bit boring, to be honest. And he was mortified. Uh, or someone had come up and asked me and say, Mez, how are you doing? I'm like, my head's battered. I'm thinking of giving it up. I can't be doing. Christians drive me absolutely nuts. I can't, I can't be reading my Bible. I'm not really praying. They'd be looking horrified, trying to get past me, you know, to the biscuit or something. 
Uh, and I worked out pretty well that Christians don't mean what they say. They don't. We mean what we, you're laughing, right? Because it's true, right? We mean what we say. And so what happens is, and I've learned this from my assistant pastor, who's such a godly boy, <laughs> is um, middle-class dudes can come across as a lot of mealy-mouthed, wimpy, weirdy, don't-say-what-they-mean people. And we come across as absolute lunatic, rude, aggressive nightmares. And um, part of having a cross-cultural team, I've learned to pare down my rudeness. I've also got a very good wife who's trained me very well. If you think I'm bad now, you should have seen me when we first met. I was a mess. Um, And my assistant, and so he's learned to be more open and honest in his speech. I've learned to be more gracious to people um, and not be so honest. I don't tell lies, but the problem, like, the, the problem is culture, you see. Now, the problem is sin. I need to not be rude. That's a sin. I need to repent of it. But um, can you see the difference? There's a language. Um, and uh, we underestimate that because we all think we speak English. And we don't. And so... It took me a long time when someone said to me at church, I remember the first time a guy said to me at church, oh, Mez, you Mez, yeah, yeah, great to meet you. Oh, you know, you'll have to come around my house sometime and, you know, hang out. I'm like, brilliant, what's your number? What? Like, brilliant, I'll come around. Give him a number, then I'll call you. They're like, give me a number, I'll be calling him the next day. What's happening? When am I coming around your house? That's a euphemism for... I politely need to get out of this conversation, so I'll say something nice and remi- They don't really want you around my house, right? It's just a polite thing to say, right? That is bizarre behavior. You need to understand that to us. I'm, like, I'm coming around your house, and you better have some scram on the table. You know what I mean? So it's, but it's a silly example, but we need to understand language because I think we miss each other. One of the things that doing these talks in America, doing them in England and the UK and, 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 and the parts of the UK and here is that it's helped me to, to um, um, be more understanding and, and, and try and use language in, in a better way, but without coming overly paranoid. Do you know what I mean? I, I am who I am, but I, I, I think sometimes brut- our brutality can come across as aggression and it's not, and I think sometimes your politeness can come across as just being a bit wet. And it's not. You're just nice people. Okay? Make sense? Understand language. Don't make assumptions about areas. So Nidri um, is well known. Ask anybody where Nidri, what, what, where Nidri is. Everybody knows where Nidri is. Um, I remember a geezer called Gavin Peacock, who's an old footballer for Chelsea. You remember Gavin Peacock? Played for Chelsea. Played in the... Um, FA Cup final, they got beat four, nearly hit the crossbar. I'm a United fan. I never bring it up much. And um, anyway, he's a friend of mine. He was coming over to, to Nidri to do some work with us. And he was on this little sort of prop plane thing, you know, the scary ones. You think, is that going to get up in the air? And he sat there all nervous. And the guy next to him said, oh, you Gavin Peacock? He said, yeah. And he goes, I'm a bit nervous about this plane. And the guy goes, oh, where are you going? He goes, oh, I'm going to Nidri. He goes, don't worry, you've got more chance of dying in Nidri than on this plane. <laughs> and the thing is, the geezer knew... The geezer knew the area. He'd never been there, more than likely, but it's all reputation, like, oh, the Shankill, oh, this area, oh, this and that. It's all reputation, right? 
And so sometimes, subconsciously, we might even live and work in a, in a scheme or in a council set, have a church there, and we think we know the area, but we don't. We don't know it what um, soever. And when I came to Nidri, it was all sorts of rep- this, that, and the other, blah, blah, blah. You know, we have a thriving art community. We have a thriving um, community spirit. And um, the amount of amazingly good things that go on in our community are innumerable. But they never get reported in the press. It's always the stolen bike, the kid who got stabbed. Do you know what I'm saying? And so Christians, we can sometimes over-egg the pudding. So don't, don't go into an area based on reputation, but go in and truly understand it. And, and, and my sort of final point is connected to it. Final point. You see that, Tom? You put it to your watch, I said final point. You, we could have a double act, you and me, son. Mr. Burns and his friend. You tell me he doesn't look like Mr. Burns. So, now you're all thinking it now. Love estates. Here's my last point. Love estates. And go in with a posture of love and learning. Please, do not see us as a problem to solve or people to fix. That's highly irritating. That's why I hate these mercy ministry things. By the way, I love mercy ministry. Talk to me about mercy ministry. Talk to me. But we're not problems to solve. We're not pet Christian-y things to make better. We're people who need to hear and understand the love of Jesus Christ in uh, the gospel. We are all broken. Matt of Christians will say a phrase to me like, how do you reach out to these kinds of people? How do you get down to that kind of level? That is the most offensive thing you can ever say. And it drives me absolutely nuts. I, I've learned to bite my tongue because I'm a bit more politer nowadays. But it is offensive. And it's not meant ill, but it gives away a mindset. It's not meant to be rude, but it just gives them away. We are people, we are broken, we are all sinners, all of us, and every area needs the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I'm not saying that rich areas don't need it too, but I'm here to argue for my guys. Amen? Is that cool? We happy, Tom? Good lad. Yeah? And I'm sorry again, there's many things I haven't said I'm sorry about that. This isn't your last opportunity to hear Mez. Mez is on again this evening at Bangor Worldwide. Um, and Tom is happy to take you and Mez out for a coffee after this evening's session, apparently, um, to discuss as many of these things as, as, as Mez would like to, to, to chat with you. Okay, Tom, yeah? Yeah. <laughs> and we're being serious about that. That's not just a flippant comment. Mm-hmm. I'm going to change the order of the program because we're going to be very un-Presbyterian, we're going to be very un-middle-class church, and we're just going to break from the routine. There's supposed to be questions and answers after a wee bit of a discussion about what we can learn. Do you know we're going to pray? We're just going to stop, and we're going to pray. You've had a bit of a chance in your groups to get to know each other. Let's pray that we would reflect what Mez has given us an example of, but more importantly, what Christ modeled. In John 1, we read that the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. And for me, just I've heard incarnational ministry, I've heard relational ministry, not about doing stuff to people or for people, but just getting alongside people on the way. 
Let's pray that we would have transformed hearts and that God would use us to draw others onto the way alongside us. Let's pray in our groups, and I will close in a few moments or so. Let's pray.
Father, as we drink, I bring our time to a close. Lord, we want to give you thanks for how you have spoken to us through Mez. Lord, we thank you for his wisdom, for his insight, for his willingness to share with us, for his freedom in his speech. And we pray that those things that he has shared with us that have come from you, Lord, that those would go deep, not just into our heads, but into our hearts. And that those seeds that you have planted today, that they would grow and flourish. And that over time, they would bring forth a fruit, a fruit in our lives, but also in the communities in which we work. Lord, may we reflect Christ's model. Forgive us when we have tried to do ministry from a distance. But Lord, we thank you for your example and reminder to us that even you as God didn't choose to do ministry from a distance, but you sent your son into the heart of community to walk alongside real people with real issues and with real potential and real gifts. Lord, may we reflect that. May we do so that, and may we do that increasingly. And so, Lord, as we leave this place to love you and to serve you in the places that you have put us, may we know you're enabling. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship and the power of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen. Folks, thank you for your time. Thank you again to Mez and to Tom. Please, before you go, if you can, if you can leave your badges, if you can leave your evaluation forms, and if you feel so led, leave all of your cash, there will be baskets at the door on the way out. Thank you again for your attendance. We trust that hopefully we will see you again um, at some similar event that we'll build on. And in the meantime, though, safe home. Thank you. We trust you've enjoyed this podcast. If you'd like to make a donation to support the work of Bangor Worldwide, please visit www.worldwidemission.org slash donate.